Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we're asking important questions like, is it okay to just root for the bad guys? Does it allow you to completely forget an earlier movie if you add the to the title? Yes, we're talking about The Suicide Squad with Paul Hoppy and Jessica Plummer. All that and more after commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew. I'm your host. I'm joined, as I said, by Jessica Plummer and Paul Hoppy. Paul, let's start with you. Why do you think James Gunn hates birds quite so much as he does? My uh, standing theory is that he was locked in a crate with birds for three hours by <laughs> either his father or his mother or possibly both. My theory is that this all has to do with him parking his car somewhere. Like, he just got his first good paycheck. He bought a really nice car and some birds did what birds do. But, you know, we're, we're going to discuss that important ethical issue. Jessica, let me welcome you with an important other issue. When you have a movie title and you then add the, does it become a new movie? Oh, it's completely different. There's <laughs> a totally different animal. There you go. There you go. Well, let's just jump right into it because we've obviously had a, a number of pieces of media kind of leading up to this. Some canonical, like the earlier Suicide Squad movie, although it sort of feels like they didn't want that to be canon. Uh, the Birds of Prey movie which is kind of a spin-off of that. Uh, obviously, the comic books about the Suicide Squad. We've had the Harley Quinn cartoon, which is completely non-canonical to any of this, but certainly has shown a very interesting side of Harley, and, and as I'll argue later, has kind of uh, given us a new perspective on how to tell stories about villains. So with all that, let me kind of start by asking both of you, where were you kind of thinking as you went into this movie? Like, in terms of all that different media that's out there, what what were you kind of feeling in terms of expectations or concerns or hopes or things you wanted or didn't want or just kind of how you felt when you sat down to watch this movie? Go for it, Paul. Okay. What is this uh, canon that you speak of? Because I, I didn't <laughs> have any sense of that existing uh, within the context of this movie. Um, I, I actually, first I'll say that I enjoyed the first Suicide Squad more than most other people did. Um, it's got some issues for sure, but I, it's probably my favorite DC EU movie to, until this one, at least, um, Wonder Woman and Birds of Prey and then Shazam, I guess, being the other ones that are kind of in that same region. Uh, there's other ones <clears throat> that I really, really dislike. Um, mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate Harley's arc from the first Suicide Squad. The ah, yeah, uh, <laughs> from the first Suicide Squad movie through Birds of Prey into this. One of the reasons that I think some things in the first Squad movie didn't bother me the way um, I think a lot of people had problems with it was because I expected that there would be a character arc that would end up this direction. I think this is kind of the arc that she has had throughout the comics, throughout her history mm. as a character. And I think it all actually works very well together. Um, this movie doesn't feel to me like it cares about the idea of canonicity or the DCEU. I didn't feel like it was trying to unwrite the first Suicide Squad movie. I felt like it just didn't care about it. Yeah. Um, and speaking of not caring, I've been like really down on media in general recently. Stuff like this movie is the sort of thing that I've mostly been disliking. Um, and I was basically just done with the DCEU after the Snyder Cut. Um, mm -hmm. I, I disliked it more in terms of quantity than I think anything I've seen. And it just, I, and thus I have no emotional investment in that 
universe anymore. And I uh-huh. almost think for that reason, I enjoyed this movie way more than I would have otherwise. Um, basically, the only reason I watched it is because in the preview, I saw the uh, Amanda Waller Bloodsport face-off like showdown. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll watch a movie with Idris Elba and Viola Davis like going head-to-head. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And then in the first scene, they're like, we're going to kill a bird. And I'm like, I'm going to hate this movie. And then somehow I didn't. <laughs> I don't know. No, that that's certainly fair, and I, uh, I I did not like Suicide Squad the way you did. I did quite like the Amanda Waller presentation, and I think the point you make about Harley's arc is interesting in both like, sort of an in character and an and a meta way in terms mm-hmm. of both the 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 arc the character has had, but also the arc of how the character is shot in terms of like being a sex object or having more agency or stuff like that. So we'll definitely talk about that. I also agree with you on the canon thing of. And I, I kind of did this intentionally in the intro. At this point, it feels to me like Suicide Squad, Birds of Prey, and this movie form a canon that is, like, very loosely connected to the rest of the DC canon, mm-hmm. but is basically its own little mini-universe. The Harley universe, basically, yeah, for yeah, all yeah, intents yeah. and purposes. Jessica, what about yourself? Where, where were you kind of falling when you we sat down to watch this movie? Um, yeah, so <laughs> I didn't actually see um, the first Suicide Squad movie because it everything I heard sounded made it sound like something I would very much not enjoy. Um, I did see Birds of Prey. I would say it's probably my favorite of the DC movies um, with Wonder Woman as a close second. I absolutely adored uh, Birds of Prey. And I don't even necessarily like... I think all three of the... Well, presumably Suicide Squad, the, the first one, can be watched on its own because it was the first one. I think you can watch either this movie or Birds of Prey completely separately. Like, I don't... You can put them together, but I don't think you have to at all. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, And I do think that there is... Like, I don't necessarily see Harley in this as a continuation of what we saw in Birds of Prey, but, you know, I I know we're going to talk about Harley playing, so we can talk about Mm. that later. Um, I also... um, I've read the original run of uh the suicide squad comics from starting in the late 80s by john ostrander and kim yale um and a bunch of artists um luke mcdonald was the first one on the book i think um and i really loved that comic um it's rightfully considered like an amazing piece of work and a really groundbreaking comic um i haven't read so much of the uh, dabbled in the subsequent Suicide Squad comics. I haven't read really any of them for the past decade or so since the new 52 happened, although I am reading the current volume. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also would say that this movie in a lot of ways owes more to um, the book Secret Six by Gail mm-hmm. Simone and uh, again, a number of different artists um, from like the late <clears throat> 2000s, which is also about a team of supervillains who we're meant to root for, except they don't really have that government affiliation. They're just kind of doing their own thing. Um, but mm. I think that the the tone of that um, the fits what we saw in this movie a bit better than at least those original Suicide Squad comics, which are very... Um, they spend a lot of time on moral complexities and the psychology mm. of the characters and this movie was not interested in any of those things <laughs> it, yeah I, I, go ahead oh i just wanted to ask 
is that the series with uh, is Catman like one of the yes. secret? Yeah, okay, I've read some. Yeah, of that's I, the I one with those. um, yeah, Scandal Savage and yeah. <clears throat> Catman and Deadshot. Who like Deadshot is a classic um, Suicide Squad character. Right, he was I believe I know he was played by Will Smith in the first movie, and mm-hmm. I believe they were going to have Idris Elba just play that character because Will Smith didn't want to come back. But right. then they were like, oh, maybe we could keep using him, so we'll give him a different. DC character to be we'll playing. Give him a different character that's the same, and then have another character who has the same backstory as well, and just be like, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah, I'd say they basically just gave him a different name instead of a different character because it's a very, very similar character concept. Yeah, I mean, Bloodsport. There are a few Bloodsports in the comics. Like this, that characters does actually exist. They didn't make yeah. him up out of yeah. whole cloth, but I don't mm-hmm. think anybody's like. Oh yeah, you left out the intricacies of his personality from his three <laughs> issues of Action Comics in 1992 or whenever he showed up. Right, right. Which, which in some ways is good because you know, kind of gives gives Elba that blank slate because I, I did think yeah. one of the best yeah. things in the movie. Well, and so let me actually start with a, a question for you, Jeff, because I think one of the biggest ethical questions we want to get into is this idea of, you know, what happens when you tell a story where the protagonists aren't heroes, and in fact, where the protagonists are pretty terrible people, but terrible people who are charming and interesting and charismatic, and it can be fun to watch or even maybe root for them. Um, and I think I, I want to jump into like how this movie approached it, because I, it, it, I think they had a very interesting take that I, I think is very in, inspired by the Harley Quinn cartoon that will debate like if it's good or not, uh, kind of ethically and kind of what it's trying to do. But let me kind of, to give us the context, tell us more about how did the Suicide Squad comic books and, and the Secret Six a little bit, but especially the originals, how did they deal with this story? How did they deal with this question of basically asking the audience to root for terrible people? Yeah, so with Secret Six, it was pretty consistently, they always, it was two things. One, always make sure that the people they're fighting are worse. Right. Um, so, you know, Deadshot may be a murderer, but he's not a child murderer. So he can go kill a child murderer. And we're like, oh, okay, good for him. Um, So that's pretty consistent. And also there's a really, it becomes a running gag in the series that they, you know, they're they're mercenaries. They'll take jobs for money. And then it'll turn out that the people who hired them are actually like complicit or really awful. And then they'll be like, okay, we we can't actually take this money. We're in fact going to kill the person who hired us. And then they're like, oh, we don't have any money. Like it's a, <laughs> it's a running thing and it's, it's charming. I don't really, I can't buy, I don't think anybody in this movie except maybe Rick Flagg deciding that. Um, mm-hmm. And like maybe Nanue because he doesn't understand money. But <laughs> yeah, um, the thing that, Suicide Squad would usually do, um, at least, again, I'm really mostly familiar with the first run of it from the 80s, but it was always a grab bag of, like, you had you had a spectrum of people, right? So you had supervillains who were absolutely terrible people, no remorse, they don't care about anyone, so, like, Joker showed up occasionally, um, Captain Boomerang was a mainstay, and he had absolutely no moral compass whatsoever. And then you had characters who were, they were villains, they were not anti-heroes, they were, they were bad, but they, they had lines, um, and, like, Deadshot typically fell into that category. And then you would have more, sort of, anti-hero characters, which mm-hmm. Harley wasn't in that iteration because she didn't mm-hmm. exist then. 
but I would say Harley fits there pretty well. Right. And then you had tortured heroes who got into bed with the government for whatever reason because they felt like they had to or they had screwed up in some way and this was some sort of emotional penance for them. Um, And I can't think of a good... Because that's sort of what Peacemaker is here, except he's not really. But, like, the comics would use, like, Nightshade for that or um, Bronze Tiger. But characters... You would have... Whenever a moral decision came up, you would have a difference of opinions on Mm. how to handle it. Like, you would have the people who didn't care if it was bad, and you had the people who were like, we can't do this, and then you had the people in the middle who would say, I don't like it, but we have to for because either, you know, they'll blow up our heads, or if we don't, something worse will happen. And that's not really a range that we get here. Right. Uh, It's, they're... There's, those discussions don't happen. One of the senses that I got from both the first and the second uh, Suicide Squad movie, uh, and I, I want to go more into kind of the way they frame it in this one, but just kind of a, a general thing, is that most of the characters are more amoral than immoral. And, and what I mean by that is that most of them aren't like, mwahaha, I have all this malice in my heart, I want to do all of these horrible, terrible things to people. It's more either that they like they think they're the good guy, or that they're just sort of like, well, I'm just, you know, making my way in the world, trying to make a buck, and I don't want to kill people, but that's how I get paid, or that's how I, like, you know, can, you know, Harley doesn't, like, set out to, like, you know, do harm to people. She just doesn't really care if she does harm to people, if she's, if they're getting in the way of her freedom, or her breakfast sandwich, or whatever the heck it is. Um, yeah. Do, do, do you think that's a only... characterization of the comics as well, that kind of, like, more amoral instead of immoral? I think, again, it's definitely a range. I would agree. Like, for this movie, the only character I can think of who I would say is actually sadistic is the thinker. And yeah, he's yeah. not on the squad. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, again, it's it's a range. I think the vast majority of them are amoral or the morality that they have does not apply to what they're doing. Um, nice. But, again, you know, you will occasionally get a character like the Joker, who, I mean, he's only very briefly in that original run, or... The, uh, couple of others that I I'm sure they're there I just can't think of who they are at the moment who are truly gleefully evil but I think also like Waller is very practical and that kind of mindset is not going to suit her well for like she wants people who don't care and also who are um, self-interested because Mm -hmm. their motivation is not to get their heads blown up yeah right and one was a character we're definitely going to talk about quite a lot once we get get to that. I'll add that I I feel like Ratcatcher too is more of an antihero than. I think it's fair. You, you know, like I, I'm like, what? She robbed a bank, maybe? Like, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really feel that strongly about people robbing banks. Like, maybe she had rats <laughs> eat people. Like, I I in terms of like criticisms of Ratcatcher 2's moral compass or whatever, I would say like you know using rats for personal gain is like the thing that I object to most. (laughs) Whereas like, besides that, it's like, I don't know. She seems pretty decent. Like, you know, see, that's the thing for me where I, I agree with you and I don't agree with you. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a failure of the movies writing as opposed to a failure of the movies, moral framework, because she's definitely like by far the nicest and kindest person in the whole movie. 
And I, I mean, I adored her. I thought she was adorable. I love Sebastian. He's a very yeah. good little rat. Um, <laughs> and I agree with you. Like, okay, she robbed a bank. She failed to rob a bank. Like, right, I right, don't right. care at all about <laughs> yeah. that. But she does, I mean, we don't see it graphically, but the implication is that she does murder people pretty casually and carelessly throughout this movie whenever they're in a fight scene or at least mutilate them and she's not bothered by the fact that everybody else is murdering people all the time constantly except until it's rick flag and that i don't think that that to me that doesn't feel like an intentional disconnect to Mm. me that feels like one of those things we're not supposed to think about too hard because i can't i can't make sense of a character who is so so kind to the shark man and says things like if i die because i gambled on love it will have been worth it mm-hmm. and then just doesn't care when hundreds of innocent people are slaughtered right right well so let me, let's use that actually as kind of jumping off point because I, I think the way the movie frames morality or, or as i i see at least frames like a reason to not care about morality is i think one of the ethically the most interesting things that it does uh, and we can talk about whether there's a good or bad thing. And, and let me start by kind of explaining what, what I see as the frame, and tell me if you guys agree with this. Tell me if you folks agree with this. And Jessica, you have not seen the Harley Quinn cartoon, or you've not seen much of it, correct? Just clips here and there. Okay. So one of the things that that cartoon does that I think this show also did, it, that this movie also did, is instead of, like, the original Suicide Squad movie did try very hard to make these people into misunderstood heroes with a heart, you know, bad people with a heart of gold. And everyone had a tragic backstory and Harley discovered the magical power of friendship. And like, it was a very much kind of like, and I think it's probably why a lot of people didn't like the movie. It it felt very saccharine for what the Suicide Squad was supposed to be. With none of the kind of ethical conundrums you're talking about. The Harley Quinn cartoon, it seemed to basically be telling the audience, look, things don't matter in this universe because what would happen is Harley would very rarely like actually seek out to kill innocent people. Um, you know, in the first scene, her and Joker like brutally murder, you know, evil corporate executives and poison Ivy is seen like murdering, you know, uh, corporate executives again, but who for environmental reasons, uh, it's a very anti-corporate show. Love it. Uh, <laughs> but th- there's a lot of times where like she accidentally kills innocent people you know, she, like, misunderstands and, like, five people die tragically. Or, like, she, like... There's a lot of kind of, like, oops moments where a lot of innocent people died, but she says oops and Poison Ivy kind of rolls her eyes and the audience laughs. And I felt like it worked in some ways because it was kind of a way of saying, like, look, this is not... We're trying to let you enjoy a story about terrible people, so we're trying to tell you, like, this doesn't really count. And... To me, it felt like this was very, very similarly trying to do the same thing. And the thing to me that really like underlined that was when our heroes have that our, our protagonists, you know, have this long drawn out scene of killing uh, all these people they think are guarding Rick Flag, and killing them in like horrifically brutal ways where they're, in the case of uh, Bloodsport and Peacemaker, literally competing to see who can do so in the most gruesome ways. It was a very Legolas Gimli kind of moment. Yeah, it's very, exactly. I think it's a perfect description of it. And then they find out that actually they just slaughtered like freedom fighters, like the literal good guys in this show, in this movie. And none of them actually says the word oops, 
but it had that exact same kind of energy of like, ah, well, oops, we weren't supposed to do that. Oh, well, life goes on. Um, <laughs> it, or it, not for them, but... Yeah, exactly. And, and to me, that was kind of the movie saying, like, don't take this seriously. You know, um, Paul, you and I a long time ago talked about the movie Desperado, mm, where yeah. there it's more clear that, like, it's a, it's a hero against villains. But if you think about it, you know, most of the villains are just, like, poor people getting paid by the crime boss because they have no job. And they're all slaughtered in, like, horrifically gruesome but hilarious ways. And the movie kind of sets it up. It's like, yeah, it's okay to laugh at this. No, um, yeah. Mm, well, I mean, I, it very deliberately, like, there's a whole, like, everybody has killed somebody's brother, somebody's father, right, somebody's it, son. I, like, It's not a perfect example. It does that for, like, 75% of the movie and then shifts. Um, but, but, but folks, the Harley Quinn's probably the better example of that. Um, so to me, that's... And, and we'll talk in a minute about, like, is that a good framework and does that work to kind of make you feel okay with things? But just to start, does that... Does that framework, uh, does that make sense to you all in terms of how this movie was approaching it? And I'll, Paul, I'll start with you because you have seen Harley Quinn. Yeah, sort of. It, it definitely had a similar vibe to the Harley Quinn show, I would say, in terms of um, things like, in quotes, like not mattering, basically, mm-hmm. both in terms of, you know, any sort of canonicity with anything else. Like the Harley Quinn show... I didn't really like the first or second episode, but once I came around to the point of like, all right, this is just a totally different, you know, set of stories set with characters that have the same names and are are like the characters in a bunch of other stories, but are completely different representations of those characters. Um, I, I started to enjoy it a lot more. It definitely has a lot of that, like, whoopsie, you know, oh, yeah. did it mean to kill that entire picnic, you know, filled with people? Like, I thought, you know, that they were somebody else, like, um, and that definitely, the, the scene where, where they kill all the freedom fighters, you know, it and it, be, which became painfully obvious to me that that's what was going on. I was like, this is, these are not, hmm, I don't, th- yeah, no. And then they were sort of like, uh, you know, they weren't going to actually talk about it, right? But they're like, so right. yeah, that happened. Um, I, I mean, t- I, I don't, I don't know, like how I feel about it, but like within the context of this movie, I do feel like it successfully kind of got me to a place pretty quickly where, like, I didn't care so much about that sort of thing as I would in some other pieces of media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I have some, some thoughts on like manipulation in media and like character deaths. And, uh, I don't know, maybe that's something we're getting into later, but like, I feel like often I feel like I'm trying to be manipulated by a lot of things and those things really stick out at me and bother me. Um, in this movie, I don't know, maybe like I didn't feel that. And maybe that's the mark of good manipulation, right? <laughs> like, somehow successfully the movie got to a place where I was just like, all right, you killed a bunch of birds, and, like, I would probably hate this movie, but for some reason I don't really. And I don't know, maybe just you put Idris Elba in a thing and I'm probably going to like it. But I like all the <laughs> Thor movies. I don't know. What can I say? I kind of went off topic there. It's okay. Idris Elba's never off topic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think that you're, like, Matthew, I think that's a very accurate description of the framework that the movie is using. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem for me, I mean, 
there's there's a couple of problems because it does that it does that a few times like the whole opening sequence where they're like here this is your team haha <laughs> just kidding you're all dead right um i think it's actually really effective and i yeah. did i did not expect like i knew a lot of them were gonna die i didn't actually expect that complete bait and switch like i really thought captain boomerang was gonna make it because he is right. such a mainstay of the suicide squad um but i also I, I have this running joke with Becky, who's been on the show a bunch of times, about how Jai Courtney, who plays Captain Boomerang, is a franchise killer because every time he's in like a major, multi, like a, a big franchise, like Die Hard, or I think he was in one of the Terminator movies, he was in Divergent, and the first Suicide Squad, and they always bomb, and it's terrible, and he's trying <laughs> so hard. So maybe they were just, you know... Killing him early to save themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that in that instance, it worked. But for me, like the the Freedom Fighters scene is the best example of it. And yeah, it's really clear. I mean, it's clear the minute you see them. Like, these, this is not the army. These are yeah, people like guerrilla fighters. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're wearing, yeah. They're wearing like, tank tops and cargo pants. Like, they're, they're not... It's so clear, the visual shorthand is so clear, so the whole time you're watching them be slaughtered, you know the joke that's being set up. Like, it's very, it's very clear how that sequence has to end. And to me, it made me profoundly uncomfortable because it is this wholesale slaughter of innocent black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing. This is not a case of like mowing down evil corporate executives or even a bunch of supervillains who we are informed right at the beginning are terrible people. These are innocent people at worst, probably actively good people. And they are marginalized people whose country has been through terrible things. And then even that wouldn't bother me so much if I feel like the movie tries to have it both ways because the sort of moral event horizon, the thing that they cannot get past, the thing that Rick can't get past and dies for it, and the thing, to a certain extent, that Ratcatcher and uh, Bloodsport can't get past is that the U.S. was involved, that all of this happened, this terrible monster was created, and these people were experimented on and abused and murdered because of U.S. involvement. And we're supposed to, they don't spend a lot of time on it, but we're supposed to go, oh yeah, no, that's very terrible. And that is a good reason that you would draw a line in the sand. And yet we're also supposed to laugh at a team sent by the American government showing up and slaughtering people. Right. Like, though, I, I feel like you, those don't both work in the same movie. And to me, another instance of that is um waller's backup team Mm -hmm. because in the beginning of the movie like the way we're introduced to them is they're betting on who's going to survive the mission and throughout that whole opening sequence they do not throughout most of the movie they do not care about the team they like there's a moment where um I think it's I think it's boomer dies and one of the guys gives his picture on his computer screen the finger like they don't care about these people they don't care that they have sent them to their deaths that they have knowingly sent them to be killed as a distraction without telling them it 
does not matter to them and they're even having a little bit of fun with it. But then later, we're supposed to believe that they would say, no, Waller, you've gone too far. You can't kill these people. So I have a slightly different reading of that situation at the end. Um, I, I agree that it felt weird that they would turn on Waller like that. Um, mostly because I feel like it undermines her like credibility and menace as mm-hmm. just this imposing figure. But I don't feel like they turned on her because they wanted to save the Suicide Squad. I think they turned on her because they wanted the squad to save, you know, the villagers basically from Starro. Right. So I, I feel like that was their line. Um, I kind of don't buy this like group of Apple store employees, like turning on Amanda Waller, (laughs) you know, I'm like, really, you all became all of a sudden, like, "Mm, I don't know. Um, and then the fact that two of them are clearly still alive at the end of the movie. Yeah. uh, You know, um, although the the woman who hit her over the head is conspicuously absent then, but Mm -hmm. to me, good. To me, it reminded me um, very much of the scene in Captain America, The Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. where um, that one guy is supposed to, like, launch the helicarrier or whatever it is he's supposed to be doing. I don't remember right. the MacGuffins yeah, yeah, of that yeah, movie. Yeah. But, you know, and he refuses yeah, to do it. MacGuffin. <laughs> right, right. He refuses to do it, and he says, Captain's orders, and it's, like, the, one, the most powerful scene in a movie. Everybody loves that scene. It's a great scene. But it works because we didn't sit with him for an hour and a half watching him be a total douchebag. Right, right, right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I feel like we're tr- we're supposed to have a similar reaction or at least something of yeah. a similar reaction. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that, James Gunn. Don't uh, know. Yeah. I, I, that was probably my biggest problem with the movie, honestly. I figured when we wrote the outline, we're going to bounce around a bit. So let's just kind of get into the Amanda Waller of it all. To me, the opening scenes were perfect. Because with uh, Amanda Waller is my favorite character in the DC universe. I've said that a couple of times. And I, I do think Viola Davis is fantastic as her. Um, I think CCH Pounder as the voice in the animated yes. show mm-hmm. is still going to always be my holy grail. And the decision to make her thin and pretty and young in uh, oh, the Archiverse is uh, uh, not my favorite. But you put it, the Arrowverse, sorry, Archiverse yeah, yeah. is somewhat different. <laughs> yeah. uh, I got those shows confused a lot when they first came out. Very different mindsets. But the point being, to me, I thought those opening scenes were a perfect illustration of her character because you have, like, one thing that people can do often when they're kind of asked to do terrible things, you know, the easiest way to get the human mind to justify awful things is to dehumanize the people you're doing them to. Mm -hmm. You know, every army, especially the American army, is, you know, but armies throughout history have often been told, like, the people you're killing are not really human. They're not like you. They're subhuman. And to me, the all of them kind of like taking bets and cheering, like you said, putting a finger up at the screen. I thought it was Weasel, but it might have been Boomerang. Like that shows how those people are just like they're morally, devo- you know, they're in the like I'm just fall. They're in that place of like I, I have divested myself from seeing the humanity in these people, and that's awful and terrible. Amanda Waller though is very different because I, I what I felt like was Amanda Waller still sees these people as human. She mm-hmm. doesn't love the idea that she's killing people, but she knows that they are tools. Like, in her mind, the protection of the United States and the, the protection of the world, because in her mind, those are the same thing, and the protection of the U.S. security is the protection of the U.S. and thus the world, that, that for her, it's a numbers game of, like, you know, 
the world will end if I don't protect this. And so if we have to sacrifice people, you know, she's that kind. She, like, to me, it was wonderful because I thought there was a great debate there of like, which one is more evil? The person who convinces themselves that other people aren't human or aren't sentient life worthy of, of you know, respect and value or the person who fully knows that they are and then will happily still send them to their death or not happily, but still send them to their death in light of what they see as like the greater good. And I feel like that was such a fascinating discussion and I wanted to get into that. And then the scene at the end just so undercuts it. And what was doubly annoying to me, especially because like this is a, you know, black woman character who is supposed to have so much power and respect and authority. And like you said, Paul, I think that undercut it. Um, so so I'm, I'm curious, did, did you all get that same dynamic that I was talking about at, in the beginning scenes of like how she and them were seeing this all totally differently? I mean, I think you're giving a lot. Like, I agree with you. The performance in the movie is fantastic, but I do think that you're giving what's actually on the screen a lot of credit based on what you know about Amanda Waller. Like, I mm. don't see any conflict or remorse in her in what is actually in this movie. Um, I didn't see a divide between how she felt about these people and how her staff felt about these people. Mm -hmm. It was just that she has no time for bullshit. Um, mm. I, I will say I do. I did not particularly like this take on Waller. I don't think that she's out of character necessarily because the character's been around for like 35 years now and there's a range of behavior for her. Right. Um, I tend to prefer a version of Waller who is more complicated and less... Mm, pretty far over in the evil category. Um, mm -hmm. Like the point where she's like, I'm going to blow up the whole suicide squad because they're going to try and stop this evil starfish from taking over the world seemed, I mean, it also like, aside from the, her getting knocked out, undercutting her, that thing is going to take over other countries too. Like it's just a stupid decision not to let the squad try and take it down. Yeah. I know. Everything I'm saying about her, her depiction, I thought was completely undercut by that end scene. I thought, I thought her actions there made absolutely no sense. I would totally agree yeah. with her there. So, um, but I also like, I, I just very recently read one of the later arcs or reread one of the later arcs of that original Suicide Squad. And it's also set in Corto Maltese because uh, basically um, it, there has been another political coup, um, but the person, the guy who is now in charge has brought a bunch of random American supervillains with him. And he's like, this is the Suicide Squad. The U.S. government is behind me. And Waller at this point um, is no longer affiliated with the government and she does not run a real suicide squad, but they just kind of follow her around anyway. Um, <laughs> and she's super pissed because she's like, no, the things that are being done in my name and in the name of what I created are wrong. They are, they are a step too far. They are evil and I'm going to stop it and I'm going to liberate this country, even though there's nothing in it for her. And she is not necessarily protecting u.s interests in any way she just thinks that it is wrong yeah. and she goes in herself like she's in like camo in the jungle fighting people herself That's with awesome. her team and it's awesome this. it's great but it it also shows a character who still has a heart even though it is a, a very bitter and fiercely protected one and i 
prefer those takes on Waller, although they are increasingly infrequent. So for me, this version of her, I was like, ah, this is so, uh, this is so far. I I would agree with that. Paul, I know you're trying to jump in. I just want to add one quick comment there. And I think you may be right that I'm reading too much in, in that I think I want to believe the Waller of the first half of this movie, because I do think in the in the cartoon at least in in justice league uh the the justice league animated show you do get the sense that like on some fundamental level she feels like she's protecting america and the world from bad things happening and to me and maybe i have to headcanon this i i like the idea that she's doing this because she does think that this starro thing is a fundamental threat and the idea, you know, once it becomes she's just protecting America's, like, I, and maybe I, I need to give it less credit because I want it to be that she wants to protect America's secrets, but she also thinks Starro is a bad thing if they can't control it and wants it to be ended. And you're right that by the end, once it becomes, no, she just cares about the secrets. It's not actually about, like, being willing to to cut any corner to prevent a global cataclysm. Yeah, that, that does feel a lot further from the characters I think she should be. So, I I mean, I don't feel like Matthew's giving too much credit to this version as the beginning um, sort of portrayed the character, at least. Uh, I, I think, I mean, honestly, the first hour of the movie, I was like, this is one of the most Waller Wallers I feel like I've seen. And I've seen a lot of different Wallers, and I mean, Jessica, you're 100% right, of course, like there isn't like a characterization of any character right in comics like there's always when a character exists for long enough there's going to be a bunch of different versions um so i guess a better way of saying what i was trying to say is like this waller is felt in the beginning very close to the waller that i know and love whereas Mm -hmm. there's other wallers i've seen that i'm like eh um And the one thing that I do feel was a little absent was that feeling of like, why does she think what she's doing is so necessary? Um, I do Mm, think they mm -hmm. made her a little bit more of a proxy for U.S. interests rather than like global interests. Like in in the Justice League Unlimited series, uh, the animated series, which is like my, you know, my one true Waller, right? Yeah. including the epilogue episode, right? Where we kind of get to see how her arc played out after um, that whole season. I I feel that she, not only does she think she's right in terms of wanting to protect the world, like she is right. She's not necessarily right about like how she goes about doing it, but like, yeah, the Justice League is potentially a threat to people, yeah. you know, and having some sort of greater balance of power makes a lot of sense. It probably shouldn't be in the hands of the U.S. military, but <laughs> like having some sort of fail safe. What if the Justice League does go rogue um, and, you know, it, you don't have access to Batman's plans to kill them all? Um, it, to me, Amanda Waller only makes sense in a world where Red Kryptonite exists. You know, right, right. like it is possible that Superman wouldn't, which I know, uh, Jessica, I know for you, like that the whole point of Superman is that he doesn't do that. But uh, oh, I was more thinking red kryptonite because in the comics, red kryptonite just has a different weird effect every time. So sometimes okay. it'll give <laughs> Superman like a lion head or make him really <laughs> tiny. So I was like, I don't, 
Look, I don't understand why that's a problem. Right, right. Look, my my canonical knowledge of Red Kryptonite comes from the thing that I think I think you would agree is the purest, clearest, most canonical Superman that's ever Superman. I don't like which is the Richard going. Pryor <laughs> Superman three. Um, oh, I thought you were going to go for uh, Smallville when uh, Clark is exposed to Red Kryptonite, so he gets a leather jacket and a motorcycle to show how bad he is now. <laughs> I, I will he, say, the, the symbiote I, takes over him. <laughs> Exactly. Spider Venom, a super Venom. Yeah. Uh, I think there's I, even a dance scene. I will say, I think wow. one of the things that may be playing into this is because I think, I think, to some extent, you're right. It may be that I'm headcanoning, but it's also that I do think the way Waller is established in the first Suicide Squad movie also helps to really inform my view of her in this. Mm-hmm. Because in that, she is very self serving and she does like kill innocent people in order to facilitate like her own survival but also the survival of her plans but she i think in that one there's a clearer case of like a horrible thing is happening and the horrible thing has to be stopped and and so i think maybe that's also jessica where you and i are seeing her differently is that i i do think they established that part of her character in the earlier movie mm-hmm. but you're right it maybe was not especially given we talked about how this movie is kind of like saying eh, just care about this one they should have done more to establish it in this movie specifically yeah, and I, I think also, Paul, you made a good point. Like, it's not clear why she thinks that it, what she thinks is necessary and why she thinks it's necessary. Like, we're not, it, it's just sort of set up to get them on the island. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of how much does she know and what does she think will happen, which again is then undermined when she apparently thinks that a giant starfish will not be able to swim. <laughs> well, so so here's here's my counter to that point. Um, the Justice League exists in this world, right? And yeah. they've name dropped Superman. I don't know if he's still in the ICU or whatever, but like he's probably fine by now. And <laughs> I would think that like she knows that this giant starfish isn't going to actually take over the Earth. Probably like if the Suicide Squad didn't handle it, like in 20 minutes, the Justice League would be there because apparently time doesn't matter in terms of getting from place to place in these movies. But like, I I would think that that's kind of like her backup plan is like, whatever, we're just going to clear out and let, you know, the, the capes kind of handle things and like we've um, eliminated any trace of US involvement here. Although maybe they haven't and it won't really work out that well. But... Um, I also, I don't think Starro is evil. I think that, that, you know, which is clear at the end when it's like, I was just happy floating in space, looking at the stars. Like, you know, the Justice League wouldn't have killed Starro. They would have like deported him basically, you know, or her or it or whatever. Like, um, and, and I, I do agree though that it's like, well, what if they're like, no, we're going to go kill this thing. Like. Does she really care that much to stop them? You know? Yeah. Like, it, and if she's going to blow up, like, any of them, like, is she going to blow up all of them or one and be like, okay, now can the rest of us get on with it? Like, and if you do blow them up, then their bodies are going to be there. So if there's any kind of an investigation into it, then it's going to be like, oh, what are they doing here? I mean, I guess you disavow all knowledge because blah, 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 blah. It's Task Force X and it officially doesn't exist. But, like, oh, there's all these escaped convicts, like... Um, yeah, it, it, I don't know. I just really enjoyed the first half of Amanda Waller. And then towards the end, I was just like, 
I didn't care that much because I didn't care that much about what was happening in the movie in terms of, like, consequence. And mm-hmm. I didn't care about things going forward. But I was like, you did just totally undercut Amanda Waller. I will say, you know, uh, Matthew, you pointed out, you know, you have this this powerful black woman. Like, they didn't have the white chick hit her over the head. Like, yeah. they had yeah. another black woman hit her over the head. And I think that was very deliberate yes. in terms of, like, taking the power away from her or whatever. Um, and, like, I... I guess I appreciate that. Like, if you're going to do that, like, yeah, do that that way. But at the same time, they didn't really make her much of a character. Whereas, like, you know, that one dude, like, they made more of a character. And I thought it was, from early on, pretty clear that he was going to have qualms with some stuff. And... I I liked what they were doing with, like, like, having a white guy or a white woman be the one to hit her would feel really bad. But it, it was the... It was that guy, like you said, the genius bar executive, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the blonde woman. I don't even remember. I'm sure that the the black woman who hits her was on screen at some point, but I barely remember her. And so yeah, mm-hmm. it felt it felt very forced in that way, which yeah, did yeah. not to me that didn't help. Right to me, yeah, it like made they, it slightly less bad. But yeah. like, it's, it's like they filmed the whole movie and they got to that scene and they were like, "Shit, we got to get another extra." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Like, let's exactly. give her one line and we'll pay her scale. All right, well, so so we're, we're talking about Waller, and this was kind of part of a larger... I, I want to kind of go through a couple of characters, but it's part of this larger question of sort of... Because I think it's one, one question the movie asks quite well, even though, as we said, there's sort of a weird, like, don't care about things, but care about things happening. But even putting that aside, kind of want to ask the question, like, who is the real... Who are the real villains? And, like, just look at this whole topic of villainy by looking at different characters. Um, so let's talk about Peacemaker. What What's your take on Peacemaker as both a character, but also sort of like where he falls in terms of who's the real villains of this story. I mean, my main thought is that it makes me so happy that they accurately depicted his ridiculous Silver Age costume. Like, <laughs> they went for it in all of its stupidity, and it's it's beautiful to me they uh-huh. did that. Was there a Silver Age moment where he was kind of like their Captain America and he was supposed to be a hero or was he always just an, an utter awful person? So he's um, not a DC character originally. He um, was part of the Charlton Comics Action Heroes group um, along with um, Blue Beetle and oh. um, The Question and Captain Adam are probably the other most famous characters in that group. And this is the um, the Silver Age Blue Beetle. So um, not the one who's been in any of the cartoons. Right. Um, and those characters, when Charlton went under, um, were all sold to DC and they were folded into the DC universe um, in Crisis on Infinite Earths in the mid 80s. So right around the time that Amanda Waller and Suicide Squad first showed up. Um, he's, I mean, he's a real, none <laughs> Charlton comics are pretty bad. Okay. <laughs> he's just sort of a generic, like, Vietnam era he loves peace so much he'll fight for it which is idiotic but it wasn't a deliberate joke when it originally uh came to be um and those are the characters that like Charlton group um are the ones that when Alan Moore was going to write Watchmen he they DC hadn't used those characters yet but they owned them so he said can I use those characters um and uh DC was like, no, we think we're going to use them for other stuff. And he was like, okay, can I make up thinly veiled versions that are exactly like those characters? 
And DC was like, yeah, we don't care. And so um, Peacemaker, I believe, is the comedian in Watchmen, mm. which oh, is an interesting yeah. context Rush to put him in. is a question, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, Blue Beetle is Night Owl, etc. That makes sense. Uh. Yeah, I, the biggest thing I thought while watching Peacemaker is, remind me, just have you seen Falcon and the Winter Soldier? No, not yet. Okay. Um, actually, if you don't mind if I spoil something about a character that's been discussed to death online. Go for it. All right. So, and I'll try not to be too spoilery in the show in, in, uh, for our audience as well. I don't care about the audience, not you. Uh, but the, um, <laughs> my own Amanda Waller version of ethics. Uh, the in that in that show, which I highly recommend, there's a character named John Walker, and John Walker feels like Peacemaker feels like the stereotype that we that we like to laugh about about like the idiot who like. Oh my gosh, I like love peace and freedom so much. I'll kill any man, woman and child to get it. And John Walker's the reality of that character. We're like I want that character to be a walking stereotype. I want them to be a walking joke. But the fact is they have complexity and nuance and they're totally wrong, but you get where they're coming from and they can be sympathetic in them being horribly wrong. And to me I I think that was I don't think I would have enjoyed Peacemaker as a character anywhere near as much if I hadn't gotten to see John Walker recently. But having gotten to see that, it was like, and having to be like, oh, God, I don't want to feel sympathy for this terrible person who thinks that as long as America's ordering him to do it, like, do it, um, because he's an awful person, to be very clear, but you feel sympathy for him the way the story's told. And so it was great to just get to hate this character and be like, and laugh at him. Uh, I, if you told me that a character from this movie was going to get to have their own spinoff TV show... I think I would rather watch a TV show about Sebastian the Rat. I mean, who I would? Come on. Sebastian. You picked the best character. Okay, bad Yes! Again. I was thinking Sebastian when you started that sentence. I'd rather watch a TV show about one of the generals. You know, I'd rather watch a TV show about any... About Star... No, Star would be great. But I'd rather watch a TV show about any of them except Peacemaker. And I... But I, I do think that Peace... To me... Here's going to be kind of a weird connection, but it fits because of Idris Elba with none of the same intelligence and depth to be clear, but in some ways this movie feels kind of like The Wire, the show that Idris Elba was a big star of, in that the main villain isn't any one person. The main villain is the system. You know, Mm -hmm. the system that has Amanda Waller thinking that anything is justified in order to do what she thinks is right to protect the United States. And the people who work for her who are in the like, well, I'm just not even going to think about the humanity of the people we're ordering to kill. And then Peacemaker, to me, is like one more part of that system. He's the I'm just following orders type. You know, I I believe in the ideal. And if you tell me this serves the ideal, I will do it. No questions asked. And so I I don't think he's a worse villain. I don't think he's more evil than any of the others. But I feel like he, he, Waller, and and the people who work for Waller, to me, are all kind of part of the same system that that is just evil throughout. With them each having some individuality, of course. Um, so first of all, I mean, I, 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 I dig all that, that, that I totally agree in terms of like spinoff show. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, really? You're doing a piece? I hadn't heard that ahead of time. And when I saw the post credit scene, I was like, why? <laughs> like, um, yeah, I'll also real quick, like John Cena, bless his heart. Did he tried really hard, but it's really clear that one person in this movie is not a professional actor. Yeah, there's just only so much acting that can go around in professional wrestlers, and 
Dwayne Johnson got all of it. And it's not very much, to be clear, but whatever there was, (laughs) Dwayne Johnson got it and John Cena did not. Yeah. I thought he was fine. I don't know. He was fine. Um, He was fine. Like, but like, I enjoyed that character as a contrast to Bloodsport and their back and forth. And, you know, Bloodsport being able to be like, it sounds like you'll just use Liberty as an excuse for anything. And like, yeah, (laughs) right? And um, I also think Rick Flagg is kind of the John Walker character here. Yeah, Mm. I think it's very fair. Where he's someone who signed up for the military. He was, you know, sold a false bill of goods. He went around doing a lot of shit that he probably should have realized wasn't good shit to do. And then eventually he got to some point where he was like, wait a minute. Like, no, this isn't... This isn't why I decided to start doing this. And so he did have, you know, a turning point, which, you know, you can think what you can think about it. But um, also Rick Flag 1G, everybody's spelling with two Gs. I don't know why. I think someone did it one time. <laughs> and then everybody's like, oh, it must not be spelled like the, the you know, word, but it is. Um, and if you want to watch a series about one of the generals, uh, Joaquin Cosio is um, uh, in a series called uh, Hentified or Gentified. Um on Netflix and it's a it's a good sitcom kind of thing. So nice. That's that's my random plug. <laughs> since, <laughs> since you mentioned one of the generals who, you know, did murder a whole bunch of birds. So, uh, you know, I was happy when he just ignominiously died and you know, he's a villain like the the president like Luna is a villain and I liked how many of them just kind of got killed like it wasn't a big thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Even though it's, like, obviously, like, the U.S. sending people in to overthrow a government is horrible. And it's historical in Latin America particularly, right? I mean, um, I I feel like this movie does make a point without really saying it's making a point. And so I think it kind of gets some ideas out there without hitting people over the head with them. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know... When it's played for laughs, maybe not so good. I don't know. I, I, I liked sort of the way that messages were kind of interwoven and that, you know, the villain, the big villain was the system, basically. It was, you know, the U.S. government trying to maintain supremacy, essentially, you know, through the machinations of Amanda Waller. But she's just one, you know, um, not a cog. She's something that controls a bunch of cogs. But, you know, she's not the entirety of the system. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. There's there's a lot of villains. There's a lot of villains in the story. Yeah. Just in the comics, does it have that same kind of tension of this constant, like, who's worse, the, the villains who make up the Suicide Squad or Amanda Waller and the people who are, like, using them as a weapon? Oh, sure. But, I mean, again, like, there there is a really wide range of moral frameworks among the members of the squad and there is a really wide range of how Waller is presented as a character um but yeah there's I mean it definitely plays with there are comics that play with that idea for sure Mm -hmm. makes sense I think the show the Task Force X episode on Justice League uh animated series is kind of particularly interesting because they they frame the whole, you know, using unpaid prison labor to carry out um, covert missions as it, it feels very different because Deadshot's about to get murdered um, or executed by the government. And so Amanda Waller essentially saves him mm. because she wants to use him as a weapon. And then 
eventually he'll be free, right? He'll get a pardon after five years or whatever, uh, or 10 years. I forget the time frame, but um, I think that plays very differently than it does if it's just like, yeah, you're just in jail and we're just going to use you to run missions and put a bomb in your head. And if you don't, then we'll just kill you or we'll threaten to kill your daughter or whatever. Right. You know, well, it, for, I think that Bloodsport's the only one in that situation. The rest of them, they don't have to take the mission, although we don't know what leverage Waller would have right. used on them. But theoretically, it's voluntary. Right. Well, and for him, it's also doubly interesting because he's also the only one where, and this is kind of a, a thing that people often look to as a marker of a different kind of morality, and we can argue about whether that's true or not. He's the only one for whom the consequences are going to be to someone else. And, and great, you know, it's not like a random, it's not a random stranger. It's his daughter, and he obviously cares about a lot of guilt. But I, I think there are some people who would be like, do whatever the fuck you want to my family member. I don't care. I, I do think, like, like by having Bloodsport, as they did with uh, um, Deadshot, you know, make the decision because he wants to protect someone else in his life, I thought that mm-hmm. was a very intentional choice of being like, yeah, this person's going to be kind of our main protagonist because he, yeah. like Harley, is not as sort of morally broken as a lot of these others. Yeah, for me, that's one of those moments where it's very clear that that's what they're doing and they're like setting aside the point in the movie where you have to have the hero have stakes in order for the movie to continue. And it, it, it felt very perfunctory to me, even though I enjoyed the scene with his daughter. I thought it was very funny. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Like it's, it's a great uh, take on that scene because they're screaming at each other instead of her like crying and being like, right. "Daddy, come home!" Like it, it was a very funny play on it, but I also felt very much like, again, it's one of those moments where I am supposed to. I felt like I was being told, "Okay, now you are supposed to have an emotion about this." Now turn your emotions off for 40 minutes while we kill people. Okay, turn them back on because I want to sell this beat too. Like, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like a cohesive tapestry to me. And, and I mean, that's how I feel about Like, that's also how I felt about Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a, an extremely fun and entertaining movie, but I didn't buy any of the emotional beats in it whatsoever because they, to me, there was not a sell-through on them. I feel like I started this podcast thinking I wanted to defend the fact that this movie is not quite as manipulative as I knew you felt it was. I think I'm coming around to the fact that I just got more manipulated <laughs> because like, <laughs> as you explained it, I think you're totally right. But like that moment where like his daughter saw him on TV and was proud, like I teared up at that. Like, and it's funny because we just had this long talk about the TV show Loki where I was ranting and screaming. <laughs> I wasn't screaming, but I was, I had to adjust the volume on my uh, audio a little bit because I was rather impassioned about the fact that I thought Loki was ha- was trying to force emotional beats on us that I didn't buy in the slightest. And so, yeah, I think it's one reason why I like analyzing these shows is I think it's it's I don't think all of a sudden I'm like guilt. I feel bad for having enjoyed it as much as I did. I think it was a very enjoyable movie, but I think you're right. It's interesting to kind of think about like and I'm not totally sure I 100 percent agree with you, but I think it's interesting to kind of think about like. Did they actually sell it or did they just um, like, did they sell it in a way that can fit with the movie or did they just kind of pull a fast one that once you think about it doesn't really hold up? There were yeah, emotional I mean, beats. <laughs> 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 yeah, like and on the flip side of that, like I don't want to come across like 
I hated this movie. It was too cynical for me and I didn't buy any. Like the part of the, of what makes it work is that it's stacked with, you know, the one exception we mentioned with phenomenal performances. Um, So when these characters are portraying emotional moments, they do like the actors are doing a really good job of it. Um, I, and during the bits in between, it's super funny. Like the the mo- the scene that I keep coming back to is um, when uh, that guy Milton is killed, yeah. and um, oh right, and I'm like Pokedot who is Milton? Man. <laughs> yeah, and and like to, it's very fair that Harley doesn't know who he is because she just got there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she wasn't hanging out with them. No, um, but uh, like Polka Dot Man is really upset, and it's a really, really funny sequence that also is based on like Polka Dot Man having an emotional reaction to something that we never saw any framework for. Mm -hmm. And the joke is that all of these people are interchangeable and Harley doesn't bother to remember their names because so many of them are dying. Like it's both a scene that works really well. And the more you think about it, the, the more problematic it is both on a structural level and on a, an ethical level. But it's really, really funny when you're watching it. And like that scene especially, I think I was, when I was most conscious of the fact that all of this like, ah, we're killing innocent people, was brown people who were being killed. Because mm-hmm. like, I, I think if that was like, you know, I think if they were in made up European country instead of made up uh, South American country, and that person being white, not that, like, I'm saying, like, yeah, all white people can be killed without moral problem. But, like, I, I think a white character not noticing the humanity of a, of a person of color just hits a lot worse than it would have if it was just, like, uh, another white person. Yeah. And then she also thinks that Milton is Idris Elba's name at the end of the movie. And I was like, ooh, that, mm. all right. Yeah. And again, it's a funny joke, but it's also like, oh, no. But, like, at the same point, like, I feel like that's kind of the joke. Like, that's, that's true. Does that, does that make sense? No, I know, I I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. My problem with that sort of thing is, and this goes back to, uh, like, especially the scene where they're, they're killing the freedom fighters. Yeah. When you, when you ask an audience to cheer on something reprehensible and also recognize that it's reprehensible at the same time, mm-hmm. I, I am very skeptical that both of those things can happen in the human brain at once. Mm. And, and I think that a lot of people are going to miss it. Um, there's a, a really, really phenomenal, um, video by Lindsay Ellis on YouTube that talks about this a little bit. Um, and, uh, it's about, um, Jewish humor for Mm non-Jewish audiences basically. And like, can you make Hitler jokes? Can you make Holocaust jokes? Like what is, who is allowed to make those and when do they work and when do they not work? Um, and, uh, she talks about the producers and, uh, she also talks about things like 
American History X where you're presenting, you know, a reprehensible person, but he's he looks really cool doing it. Mm-hmm. And so how many people came out of that movie going, that was dope and not that was reprehensible. Right. And in this case, how many people walked away from that fight scene where Bloodsport and Peacemaker are competing to see who can kill the most brown people in the awfulest ways and just went, that was so funny and badass and never picked up on the underlying message that I do think is also in there. How many people walked away from that scene going, that was so funny and so badass and never picked up that there was another message to it Mm. or will only remember the part that was funny and badass. I think that's fair. And I, I have a comment of where I think I falls, but the first thing it reminds me of, uh, and I talked about this a while ago on this show, but I haven't talked about it, I think, in a couple of years. One of my favorite sets of books and movies is The Hunger Games. And I I really love the, what, what the book is trying to do of, like, make a critique of violence and a critique of, like, the, the commercialization of violence as entertainment, which... I mean, our, our enjoying this movie is exactly what Hunger Games was supposed to be critiquing, which is kind of yes. the point as well. But it's but, also exact. No, go ahead. You make yeah. the point. Sorry. But the, the director of the movie said they had this real problem because oh. the movie is supposed to, the, the story is all supposed to be about that violence isn't cool. And, and so how do you show the violence of the, mo- of the book on screen? And the director said that like his sort of like, uh, maybe her, I forget, or there. The director said that their like benchmark was they didn't want any kids to walk out of the movie and want to reenact the fight scene. So, so I, I totally hear where you're coming from Jessica. And I think, I think that's to some extent a fair critique of this movie. I feel like, I think with satire, there's always this question of like, are you making it clear enough that it's satire, that it, that it's okay? Or do people think you're being serious? I think you're right. Yeah. The movie doesn't do a good enough job as it should have. Well, but I, and I think, I'm glad that you said satire because that was the that was the thing that I couldn't put my finger on. I I don't think that most of the humor in this movie is not punching up. Mm-hmm. It's so much of it is punching down, and scenes like the freedom fighter scene are punching down to me. That's fair. I, the point that I was going to make though is that I feel like when you compare it to something like the Joker movie that came out recently, uh, or like some other things where I feel like. I'm not trying to justify it, but I sort of feel like in terms of finding that line of satire that makes clear that it's satire, I feel like this movie did, you know, so many people, the, the director of uh, and the writer of The Joker defend it by saying, like, it's supposed to be about this horrible person. It's supposed to be satire. From what I see, like, most of the audience didn't get that. Um, no. And, and I feel like there have been a couple other things where that's the case. And so I, I guess to me, like, this feels like it's so not as bad as some of the most egregious ones that I don't. I don't blame it as much, but I, th- I do think you're right. I think that, that it definitely, it missed that line and, and the punching down part of it makes, makes, makes missing that line a lot worse. I feel like it's punching everywhere. Um, like <laughs> in that scene specifically, like you could say it's punching down and in terms of the literal violence being en- enacted on screen, it is um, engaging in all manners of creative violence in a downward direction. Uh, but I feel like the butt of the joke is like the U.S. government, like stomping around like Bilgesnipe, like just <laughs> trampling everywhere and like not having any regard for, 
you know, collateral damage and just calling it collateral damage and not, you know, um, mass murder. And I, I felt like that was also the, you know, I, I think the joke is on Harley about Milton, but again, Milton is the victim of the violence. And, you know, I mean, then like polka dot man getting stomped on kind of for laughs, but like also, I don't know if that was like for stakes or what, or like, I felt like when Milton got killed, like I, that actually was out of all the deaths, probably the one besides like the bird in the very beginning that like, I felt like hit the most. And it, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think you make a really, really legit point in terms of when creating any kind of story, telling any kind of story, creating whatever kind of art, you know, different people are going to interpret it differently. And I think it's a hundred percent true that a lot of people will see this movie and not think of, you know, the, the U S government and it's, you know, the CIA and, and, you know, the military's interventions abroad, like will not see that as kind of the target of, of the shots. Um, but I, I mean, I do. And so, like for myself, I feel like I can enjoy the movie on its own as like kind of seeing what's going on and, and having my own interpretation of it. I enjoy my own interpretation mm-hmm. of it, but I I am concerned about like what other people's interpretations will be. Like the Joker movie, honestly, I thought it was a really, really well-made movie that made some points that I really agree with. I also can see how a lot of people watched it and thought like, it was making very different points that I very, very, very much do not agree with. And when it comes to like, I don't know what types of stories to tell, I think it's tricky. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's like an easy answer. I, I think, I think questionable is, um, you know, kind of where, where it falls for me, but it feels like it works to me because I feel like I'm seeing a particular joke and I don't think the joke is ha ha you know, a bunch of brown people are getting killed and their deaths don't matter, their lives didn't matter. I think the joke is about, you know, the U.S. government using, you know, exploiting prison labor and, you know, fucking around abroad and overthrowing governments and not really caring about the consequences to people. Um, But like, you know, yeah, a lot of people aren't going to care about that and they're just going to be like, haha, that's so funny the way that person got killed. And like, that's that's, that's not the best. You can't, you can't predict how every single person in the audience is going to react to your movie. You can't idiot-proof your movie, and you can't make art for what you assume will be the lowest level of comprehension, because the, I mean, Zach that's... Snyder yeah, because when you do, Sorry. it sucks. Yeah. I was going to say that we, we get that movie about emojis coming to life. Oh, God, <laughs> yes. um, but... At the same time, to me, it did feel like it was kind of trying to both go, ha ha, people mm-hmm. are dying, and ha ha, the U.S. military industrial complex is terrible. And right, right. Yeah. those two things, it, it was trying to have its cake and eat it too, in many, many ways throughout the movie was how I felt. I think that's fair, because I, I, I sort of left feeling like, is Milton a brown person in this movie because the point is supposed to be that it's we would send the Suicide Squad to 
you know, a Latin American nation a lot faster than we would to other parts of the world. And let's like talk about how awful the U.S. government is. Or is it that audiences maybe wouldn't have been able to laugh at it quite as easily if it had been a white person instead of a brown person? Some parts of audiences like I I hate the fact that that's even a thing. And I really, really hope that wasn't a part of James Gunn's consideration. But I think some studio executives certainly think in those terms. I also wonder, though, because I also wonder if there's a third part of this, which is that and this is a thing that we talk about a lot on this show. You know, they didn't make up this country for this movie. And I, I wonder if this is also a situation where you had a country made up at a time where our understanding of the ethical issues involved in telling a story about Americans going into a Latin American country were not as, you know, we didn't, people were pretty, pretty happy to tell those stories 30 years ago in ways that at least some of us today are, are see them as a lot more problematic. And so I also wonder if they just kind of like took that story from however many years ago without taking the time to think like eh, maybe like we shouldn't be telling a story about a bunch of Americans invading a Central American country quite as happily as we did 20 years ago? Well, I think, I mean, I'm not sure if Corto Maltese was created for the story that I described earlier mm. um, or if it was created previously to that, but I think that it, the big difference in the story in the comics is that they are going in to undo the harm that has been done already by mm. Americans invading. Oh, that's, um, that's and that change. that is yeah, that's their only motivation. And at the end, the the uh, Corto Maltese and Freedom Fighter, who is the reason that they knew about this and went in, is like, well, now we don't have a president. Hey, Waller, do you want to be our president? And <laughs> wow. she's like, are are you kidding? And like, and it, it's a joke. And, and they kind of joke about like, she's like, no, that's ridiculous. And then like somebody on the squad, like ribs her about it. And she's like, watch it or I'll, you know, have my new firing squad shoot you. Like it's, it's funny because like, she's pretending she's going to be president of this country. She's obviously not going to take that job um, because she does not have the right to. Um, but like, if they wanted to use a different part of the world, they could very easily have done like Vlatava, which is an Eastern European fictional country that is ruled by Count Vertigo, who is also a recurring member of the Suicide Squad. Like they had plenty of mm -hmm. um, or opportunities or something. to, yeah, yeah, they have a lot of fictional countries. Um, and, and this is where I hate the meta conversations about these movies, because I imagine somewhere some studio executive said, if we put it in an Eastern European country, everyone's going to say, oh, you're just copying Sokovia. Sure. Yeah. Which, yeah. Which they have, uh, DC has Markovia. <laughs> like they have very <laughs> similar uh, fictional countries. Um, the other thing I think would have helped with this is if any of the Corto Maltesian characters had been developed in any way. Like mm -hmm. President Luna is the only one who gets anything and all we really get is that he looks good in a speedo like yeah. no <laughs> you know if the leader of the freedom fighter is he likes even got a, like yeah she she had a sign a scene where she was like i'm doing this because i i'm gonna tell you why i love my country in 30 seconds like yeah, yeah. Right. that would have helped yeah well, so I think we could just spend an entire episode just talking about this question, but I want to go on to another deeply ethically uh, complex character who is clearly a stand-in for a lot of very intense social issues in our world today, 
And I'm, of course, talking about Stardo. Um, being a little sarcastic here, what, so what do you all think of Star? Where does Starro fall on the, like, a script writing 101 class would look at this movie and say, oh, Starro is the big bad. But I think obviously we're supposed to think that's not quite the case. And Paul, you already pointed out, like, Starro just wanted to hang out in the stars. Where does Starro fit for you in terms of this question of, like, who is a villain? And, and how do you feel that was either successfully or not successfully portrayed? Starro's a MacGuffin. Starro's like the helicarrier in uh, Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I feel like... Um, yeah, I mean, Starro is basically just, like, the plot thing, which... Yeah, I, I, I want to say something about the word MacGuffin, but I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to give you random trivia about Starro in the comics in a minute. So if if you want to give trivia about MacGuffin. Yeah, I mean, MacGuffin is supposed to be like the, the origin of the word MacGuffin is like something that isn't actually really particularly a thing on mm. that's like on screen. It's like uh, like the, the ultimate example that I've seen is I think Mission Impossible I want to say three where like there's some weapon on like a USB drive and like their mission is to get it and they get it. And then he hands it over and they're like, don't you want to know what it does? And he's like, no, like <laughs> that's, that's a MacGuffin you yeah. know, where it's like, it's like, we don't even know what the thing is. We just know that it matters here. Like Starro is a character, you know, I mean, we don't know yeah. much about Starro except that Starro was out in space and then, I don't know, fell to Earth? Oh, no, 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 they They encountered him in space, right? U.S. astronauts. And then they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, we'll plop him down on Cortel Matisse and, like, um, and then run a bunch of tests with, you know, Nazi uh, scientists and basically, you know, manipulate the government of this this country and uh, have you let them use it to, like, murder dissidents and... You know, Starro's basically just, like, trying to survive and is is really a victim, right? Like, has been held in captivity for 30 years and used for these experiments and then gets loose and is like, rawr! So, <laughs> yeah, you know... Of all the many deaths that I did or didn't cheer for, I think Starro killing Thinker, who... Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Does Thinker have... <laughs> yeah. Does Thinker have like, I just kept thinking, like, you go to a gentleman's club, what happens if someone trips and falls on your head? Like Those things, those things on the safe. head. Yeah. yeah. You need a helmet. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, no. Uh, back to the actual question to start off. I, I, I kind of think you're both right, because if, Jess, if I understand what you mean by the McGuff, I, I think what you meant is that Starro is the obstacle that has to be overcome, but not necessarily, like, the evil thing. Is that, yeah. Is that yeah. kind of a fair way to put it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's... Again, like the helicarrier, it, Starro's... Starro is sentient, but that particular plot role could have been taken by something that was not sentient as long as it was very hard to destroy. It could have been like a volcano that was going to explode unless yeah. they like, cut out the... I think that's where Cortal Matese uh, showed up in, in the animated series. Yeah. And then they sent um, Doomsday to go try to kill Superman there. <laughs> it, it's part of, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this and I'm just thinking, like, if we'd had more... De- there's so many of the stories that if we just had more development on, and I I think at this point, like, the, the biggest effect of the pandemic is I'm just done with movies. I want everything to be, like, a four- to eight-episode, uh, you know, show. Like, just give well, us more of that I development. I feel the opposite. If you want more about these characters, yes. let me tell you about something called comic books. What? <laughs> 
there's just oodles of them. Tell us about Starro. Um, so Starro uh, is the reason that the Justice League originally formed. Their very first adventure <laughs> together. They, they team up to... Yeah, the very first uh, Justice League story, they team up to defeat Starro, who is a giant starfish that comes to Earth and to take over and like puts a little baby starfish on people's faces. Ex- mm-hmm. Except, you know, obviously it's a comic from the 60s, so once they defeat Starro, the little baby starfish fall off and the people are fine. Right. They don't all die horribly. Um, but And, like, Starro just shows up every so often to be a big villain from space. Um, but my favorite thing about Starro is that one of those little baby starfish um they the justice league kept it and they raised it in a jar for a while and so they named it jaro and <laughs> it, it loves batman and it wants to be robin and so they made him a little robin costume <laughs> wow okay so i'm just gonna say two things one that is absolute podcasting gold i'm so glad we have that on our air <laughs> two paul i promised you that we'd try to keep this episode not going long uh, once you are asking to learn more about Starro and going on MacGuffin tangents, uh, you've <laughs> lost the ability to complain this episode is as long as it is. I mean, we were already past the mark we were headed for, and we haven't even really touched on Harley yet. Yes, you're right. Let, let, let's Harley is our, a good segue now. Um, Paul, what did you think? I, I, you talked about kind of Harley having an arc. What, what do you see as kind of Harley's arc, and, and what did you like or not like about her in this movie? Um, this is my favorite Harley I've seen in live action so far. I feel like the arc, I feel like this is Harley being like a fully realized version of Harley. Um, where in the original Suicide Squad, it was largely about her relationship with Joker and, Mm -hmm. you know, very abusive relationship with Joker. And I mean, Joker basically makes her into a supervillain. Like she is who she is. And then he, you know, manipulates her, twists her, and, like, has her physically disfigure herself. And if that movie had just been the only appearance of Harley Quinn in Mm -hmm. in the DCEU, and, like, I don't care about the DCEU as an extended universe, but I feel like we kind of got a Harley trilogy, right? Where, Where she's, I mean, she's the main character in Birds of Prey, even though she's not technically the main title character, but she's the only individual character with her name in the title. Uh, The marketing of that movie, very confusing. But, um, you know, I I think I wouldn't have loved it if that was her whole arc, right? Um, The fact that then they did Birds of Prey and Harley, you know, liberates herself, right? And she becomes her own woman and she... You know, she makes friends and she does stuff. And to me, Birds of Prey is kind of Harley becoming who Harley's going to be. Right. And then this movie, to me, feels like Harley being who Harley is, is going to end up as. And I one, one of my pet peeves in superhero movies is the feeling that in every single volume, they need to have this, like very serious character development and the hero has to question why they're a hero and like you know this happens in in there's batman begins and then in the dark knight there's again this questioning although maybe less of it than in things like spider-man 2 or whatever um you know superman 2 superman gives up the the cape you know and, and gives up his powers um and this is more other things more more recent but like there's just always this sort of reinvestigation and I feel like we rarely get to see the hero just be the hero 
And while Harley is, maybe at this point, I feel like she's more of an anti-hero, or she's an anti-villain, or she's just, Harley's just Harley. And I loved seeing her bust out, you know? Like, the, I mean, you you mentioned uh, torture somewhere, um, and I... I'm really not a fan of torture in movies. Um, and I think, you know, torture of women is maybe extra problematic. But in general, like, that's the fastest get- way to get me to quit something. Mm-hmm. Is to, like, have a lot of torture. Um, I feel like Harley's a character who, like, when she's being tortured in a way like that, like, she's mentally... There's something going on. There's another Suicide Squad uh, movie where... They're all, like, doing something to their brains to try and short out their chips so they won't get their heads exploded. And she's, like, just laughing. She's like, this is fun, guys, you know? And it feels to me like, for her, it's a different experience than it is for most characters that it would be. And the fact that then she broke out on her own... Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that she shot the president when she's like, oh, that's totally a red flag. I'm going to shoot you now. Um, and, you know, the fact that she was like, you're hot, you know, and then she's like, you know, I'm going to have sex with the president because I feel like it. And then she's like, I'm going to shoot the president because I feel like it. And it seems like the best thing to me to do at the moment. It just felt to me like Harley being Harley. And um, it, I don't know, to, it felt empowering in a way that wasn't like, this is empowering. But was yeah. just like, it just was. And I, like, as much as I love the Wonder Woman movie in the way that it delivers on that, I feel like Harley Quinn as a character delivers that in a very different way. And I feel like this movie was kind of the completion of that journey through, almost by not having there be a big journey within the movie, but right. just like, this is who she is. And yeah. I don't know. Um then she got, you know, the kill shot in at the end, too. And, yeah. and I, I, I think I mostly agree with you. And Jessica, I think you have a different perspective. And I really want to hear that. And you may well convince me otherwise. I just want to say one quick word about the her shooting the president. Because I, I do really agree with you about that arc. And I feel like that that scene was so intentional. Because so much of her story up till now had been about, like, her falling for the wrong people and not just guys. I mean, she's canonically queer in the first movie, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Though I wish that was kind of, it, it felt like they kind of made her more straight again. This one which is a little annoying, but whatever. Um, but like, you know, and in the second movie, it sort of felt like she was like, okay, I need to stay away from romance. I need to not think about that. I need to like work on myself, which is super good and empowering. And like awesome that they didn't give her some stupid love story. But I love that in this, like you said, like she was able to be like, yeah, you're hot. Let's go. Let's have fun. But the moment she saw a red flag, like, you know, before it was like it blinded by the great sex and the great partner or whatever and think that, you know, ignore all the red flags. Now it's like, oh, you're amazing. You're wonderful. Red flag, I'm going to kill you. Right. <laughs> Which is like a little more extreme than I think self-help would generally recommend. Sure, sure. It's not but the still that idea of being able to be yeah. like, I see a red flag, everything else goes out the window. Like that, I just thought I love that so much. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed Harley in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm not, you know, I don't I don't have any complaints. Um, I think that a big part of like why it's sort of, you know, we don't get any we don't get any angsting, we don't get any back and forth, we don't we don't really get an arc for her. Like she doesn't have an arc. She does things, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but she doesn't have an internal arc. And I think a huge part of that is just because it's an ensemble movie and she's not the 
main character in that ensemble, which is totally fine. Like this is right. blood sports movie. Um, and she is not one of the characters who is there to, I mean, you know, polka dot man also doesn't have an arc, which is fine. Like not everybody in a, a movie with this many characters is going to have that. Um, I, I do like to a certain extent, I feel like, like you can kind of take her out of this movie and have the actual tasks that are accomplished by her sort of accomplished by anybody. Um, like it doesn't, it's not, it's not a movie that is driven particularly by Harley's personality and her choices. But again, mm -hmm. it's an ensemble movie, so right. it doesn't need to be. Um, I think Margot Robbie is wonderful in the role. I think she did a fantastic job again. Um, for me, I preferred the Birds of Prey take on her just because I do think it spends more time with her like it because that's her movie and and it's much more about her interiority and um and it does show more of a you know she's more compassionate in that movie which for me personally because I'm a Pollyanna I like that uh -huh. um but she she's a hell of a lot of fun in this one um I did really appreciate because like you know, so many people have pointed out that the first movie, the way that she shot yeah. is so um, male gazy and so exploitative. And she is in that movie to be a sex object. Yeah. And her fishnets and tight shorts are as much a character as she is in that movie. Right. Let's have all these close ups of her, you know, changing clothing and stuff. And Birds of Prey very, very deliberately was not about that. And I think that this this movie um, is really good about not sh not filming any women that way. Like nobody in this movie is a sex pot. When Harley gets glammed up, she's glammed up like she, like it's prom. Like it's it's not. She looks great. She looks beautiful, but it's not an outfit that's intended to be sexy. It's yeah. an outfit that's intended to make her look like a queen. Um, and, and and even when she ha has an incredible sex scene, like. The outfit never comes. Like I was kind of like, oh god, is this when you're gonna like show us her ass by like? Nope. The outfit stayed on throughout the whole scene, which I also love. Yeah, and when she rips off part of her skirt because she needs the fabric, it's not like, oh, now we can see so much of her like thighs and ass because there's so much skirt. You really like it's, it's shorter, but it's not scandalously revealing in any way. Um, but it's also like the way that the camera is placed, like it treats men and women the same. Um, Except for El Presidente, I, I think. Right, yeah, the only one who gets, like, the sex pot scenes are President Luna, which is fine by me. Um, but um, the one thing that I did, and it's not even necessarily a complaint, but I did notice this. Um, there's a scene in Birds of Prey where Harley is being tortured, and we don't see her being tortured. Yeah, uh, It's the... Um, Diamonds are a girl's best friend scene. Like she goes into a little fantasy scene in her head um, and we see a dance number instead of the torture. And I really appreciated that Birds of Prey as a film was making the conscious choice not to make the audience watch yet another scene of a woman being tortured. And so watching this movie, I was very conscious. Okay, here is a scene with torture, but I think it's really notable that it's like the only scene that isn't gory in the whole movie. Mm -hmm. They chose a method that is. Yeah. They didn't cut they, her. They, they, it was a, didn't do visible damage to her body in any way. Right. Like they, it, a 
quote-unquote bloodless method. Like, the, it would be doing way more damage to her than of what we're actually yeah. shown. Yeah. But it's it's sanitized, not sanitized, yeah, it's, it's sanitized in a way that none of the other violence in the movie is. And I think, again, that was a very conscious choice not to immerse us in violence against a tied up woman. And I think, you know, that the fact that she's singing can also imply a through line through Birds of Prey that she is once again getting through it by going into a musical number in her head. Um, And even when she is being tortured, it's not sexualized in any way. So while I also prefer not to have scenes where women are tortured, I thought that it was... I appreciated the care with which it was handled. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good way of putting it. I kind of, I, I feel like Birds of Prey sort of set the gold standard for that kind of thing. And I didn't know why they showed her being tortured. I, I wonder if it's kind of like, oh, well, we can still be a little bit, because it was so clearly a reference to Birds of Prey when she was singing her way through it. And then I did think using the song she was singing as the soundtrack for when she gets to utterly kick ass was mm-hmm. such a brilliant callback to that. Um, I didn't, it, yeah, it was kind of like, kind of like what I was saying about some other stuff. It was like, you know, you got an 8 out of 10, and I wish you'd gotten a 10, but so many other things get a 3, that I still think this was so much better. Um, yeah. You know, especially without, because when the sexy, and also you're right, the, 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 ripped, the ripped dress, I definitely was feeling that. And I also, and, and, and Paul, you commented on this, so if you want to comment on it more, I thought having her be the one to rescue herself as everyone else is getting re- to ready to rescue her was such an empowering and, like, I don't, Paul, I don't want to steal your line. You, you literally said, like, you know, flipping the trope. Why don't you say more about that? Because yeah. I don't want to just take your line. But I, I thought what you pointed out was so true. Yeah, I mean, I think basically just they're trying to subvert that trope of the, you know, damsel in distress. And, like, the way that, like, the whole thing, you know, I, I think, Jessica, you make excellent points about how that isn't, the, the violence there towards her is not, portrayed the same way most of the violence is throughout the rest of the movie and to me then the you know there's like a sort of catharsis of her busting herself out and we when they like turn the blood to like you know flowers or whatever it's like i i feel like they're kind of trying to like show us the way that she sees the world and um and and so yeah like kind of taking something that we've seen a hundred times and being like okay, we're going to do it a little differently. You know, it'd be like at, at the end of Age of Ultron, like Black Widow rescues herself and Hulk gets her. And he's like, ah, and she's like, oh, hey, what's up? And he's like, well, don't, oh, you know, it, it's <laughs> to me, it's a little bit like, like in Star Wars where like, you know, they go to rescue Leia and then like, they really need her help to get them out of there. Like it's a kind of incompetent rescue here. It's like, they might've had a really great, oh, it was, it was a really great plan. She's like, well, I could go back in if you want, you know, and <laughs> like, that just felt like the most Harley thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I just enjoyed that. They took something that felt like it was going in a particular way. And they're like, no, we're, we're going to do it a little, you know, kind of, kind of the opposite. Um, and it's like, you know, she's she's happy to have friends there, but like, you know, she doesn't she doesn't need them to rescue her like she can rescue herself, even though somebody who's tied up and, and you know, captured by dozens of people like usually whoever they are probably would need someone. But like they don't. It's a, it's a comic book movie. You're allowed to bust yourself out. So it's like her being able to bust herself out there. I, I just enjoyed how they, you know went in one direction and they're like, no, we're, we're going to do it a little differently this time. 
Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And especially uh, the flowers thing, I think, is kind of an interesting comment on the whole discussion we had about, like, the uh, we haven't really talked about the gore. I feel like we were all kind mm-hmm. of like, eh, could No, to me, and again, because the movie's not as serious, I found the gore in this much less objectionable than I do in, like, The Boys. Um, yeah, me too. But, but here, I think, like, I feel like Harley maybe feels, falls into yet another moral category where she's kind of... She's very intelligent, and I don't mean this in any kind of a bad way, but she's very much a child at heart. And I feel like she has kind of a childlike idea of, like, there's not really consequences to the things she's doing. And, and to me, the fact that, like, the movie that was being so gratuitous about gore shows, like you said, that in her world, it's flowers that are popping out because she sees beauty in blood. You know, she thinks right. he's b- beautiful when he's dead and bleeding out. Like, I thought that was... And again, maybe I'm giving too much credit to the writing... I thought that was a nice way of kind of underscoring, like, Harley has yet a completely different understanding of the consequences of her actions that put her again in, like, villain, hero, and eh, not doesn't really fit into a box. Yeah, yeah. for me, I mean, the, the flowers are very, it's very birds of prey. Yeah, It is very much, much yeah, and I, I did feel... I like the effect. I like the scene. I did think that the the sort of aesthetic of this movie didn't really commit. What like there were almost sort of chapter headings, like where you'd see like the name of the next section on the yeah, beach yeah. spelled out in debris or whatever. But it seemed very sparse when that would happen. Whereas something like Birds of Prey or like. Um, Scott Pilgrim is another comic book movie that like picks an aesthetic and commits to it very hard the whole way through. Um, I think that works better. Whereas every time it happened in this movie, I was like, "Wait, what?" Um, it did because feel jarring, it was, it, yeah, it's very jarring and mm. not jarro, which I would have liked. <laughs> um, so for me, even though I think that it was a well done scene, I was sort of like, "Why is this happening?" That's fair. That's fair. So, I, I, we're already at 90 minutes, and I don't want us to go too long, <laughs> way too late. But let's kind of get into the last kind of set of issues, um, you know, in terms of the kind of the meta issues about this. We kind of joked already a bit about the first one being kind of, why does James Gunn hurt, hate birds so much? Um, but, but Paul, I know you had a couple other kind of meta issues you wanted to bring up. So, go, well, you want to start with the uh, uh, birdophobia, I forget the exact word. Uh, or, or, or another one. Go, go for it. Ornithophobia, I think. There um, you go. Yeah, I mean, I don't have that much to say about it, but, like, just don't kill this many birds in your movie. Like, what the fuck, dude? Like, I, just I don't know. That's, that that's first, all I got. Like, like, the brothers and sisters of the first bird got revenge. Like, I did like that Savant got, like, sure. you know, picked to death. Got by eaten the, by birds. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, I kind of liked that Weasel wasn't dead. Like, I was kind of bummed out in the beginning. I'm like, yeah. Oh, you're just going to kill the, the weasel dude? Like, you know, I mean, I know he ate a bunch of children, but, like, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know. I mean, yeah, I just... I don't know. It, it, it was just very weird in terms of, like, animal characters and the treatment of animals. Because, like, you know, you had all these birds just getting murdered for no apparent reason. And then you had rats being the heroes who literally saved the world or took down Starro. But then you had Starro, who's this non-human creature who, like, you know, I don't know, like, is, is a victim for most of the movie. But then is the primary, you know... Uh, we can call him a MacGuffin if we want. And, like, then there's also, there's, like, King Shark and Weasel. And it's, like, 
I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> at the end of the day, I enjoyed the movie, even though it had a lot of things that I'm like, are like borderline deal breakers, which, you know, the gore is too. And it's mm-hmm. like having a movie this gory only because it, it, it did just kind of like feel like it doesn't count. But at the same time, kind of why I liked it was because of like the weight of the interactions between, you know, Idris Elba and Viola Davis. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just glad Sebastian made it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I would rage quit. <laughs> that would have been it. <laughs> Remotes would have been thrown. Yeah, I, I, I am with you there on Sebastian. I Ant Man is one of my absolute favorite movies. But mm-hmm. spoiler Anthony. Spoiler alert, when the ant like Anthony dies, I was yeah. very upset. I was like, yes. don't do that. Like yeah. especially because I think it rate like to me the only moral issue of like the Ant Man or the Ratcatcher person is they're putting these animals in mortal danger, you know? Right. And I, yes, I am sure that Starro killed many of the rats before they took him, took Starro down. I was very glad we never saw that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Well, I think that's why she was crying. Yeah. That's also mm, true. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 yeah, I think in that mattered too, you know, and it was over the top and ridiculous, but that whole thing about like, if rats can matter, we all can matter. Like that <laughs> oh. hit me hard. I love yeah, that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Taika, Taika Waititi just <laughs> showing up for one scene in front of a green screen and getting two million dollars. <laughs> what What did you think, um, Jess, of Weasel? Because I, 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 Paul, I had kind of a mixed reaction. Of my first reaction was like, the idea that no one checked if he could swim, I thought was just brilliant. Like it was such a beautiful story <laughs> note. But I was also like, this character seems so cool. I'm kind of bummed you killed him off. So I was happy he lived. But um. Uh, what 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 can you tell us of Weasel? Does does he have a a, a Starro level of story story cred? I have to confess, I have never read a comic with Weasel in it. I'm okay. sorry. I've read a comic. I've read several comics with Marvel's Weasel, who is just a guy, but that's a different character. And I think he's in the Deadpool movies. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't. I can bring no comics trivia about Weasel uh, to the table. I when they made that joke, like, oh, he killed 27 children, and then he immediately died. Like, I thought that, I thought the drowning scene was very funny. Um, and then when they were like, oh, he's alive, I was like, it's a funny gag, but I don't, like, I wasn't upset that he was alive, because I don't care. But I also wasn't like, thank God, the child killer is okay. <laughs> it's just like, all right, that's pretty funny. The movie is over now. Yeah. Played by Sean Gunn, who I think is uh, James yeah. Gunn's uh, brother. So. Yeah, yeah, he's um, isn't he also in the um, Guardians of the Galaxy movies? Yeah, I think like half the cast was in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Yeah, mm-hmm. he plays Kraglin. I don't, I don't remember who Kraglin is, but yeah, it's one of the pirate guys. I, I definitely oh, think yeah, that. Yeah. What? Oh, I can recognize him now. I definitely think to some extent James Gunn was very smart in recognizing how much like mixed feeling there is about the DCEU right now in that he kind of told the movie that like it could fit in the canon it could not no one cares you know and yeah. he yeah and to go back i would say like like one of the things that i thought this movie did so well this getting more into like review than ethics but i think like you know the ethics of good movie making um <laughs> i was really i think that this movie did something that marvel has never quite managed to do which is to take a person who's had the, well with the avengers they have but it can be a problem later on like once a character has really had their own sort of like big movie, it can be, I think it's often very hard to put them back into an ensemble 
with mm-hmm. characters who haven't had their own movies yet. And mm-hmm. I did think, like, I think you're right. If you wanted a, a Harley movie, I can understand why this wouldn't be the movie for you. But I thought I was actually really impressed that they were able to be, and that Margot Robbie apparently is perfectly fine also with Harley gets her movie. And then now Harley gets to be part of a team again, and she's not shunted to the side, but she's just part of the gang. And and does you know, and it is more Idris Elba's story than anyone else. Yeah. Yeah, I, I go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna go on my Birds of Prey rant, which is I really enjoyed the movie. I think it's a very good movie. I think it's definitely vastly underrated, uh, particularly amongst DCEU canon. Um but, like, oh, calling it a Birds of Prey movie when it's a Harley Quinn movie, just <laughs> call the damn thing a Harley Quinn movie, maybe have it be an origin story for the Birds of Prey, and then give the Birds of Prey their own movie. Like, ah, oh, what are you doing? It drives me mad. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like it would have sold better if it was just called Harley Quinn, too. 100%! That's way more name recognition. Like, nobody's going, Birds of Prey. Like that WB show from 2001? Exactly. Like, I was excited to see a Birds of Prey movie, and I'm like, what do you mean it's going to be a Harley Quinn movie? Like, if you want to sell me on a Harley Quinn movie, give me a Harley Quinn movie and call it that. Like, and she's got yeah. so much more name recognition. Like, it would have it could have made twice as much in the box office. It was a very weird choice. Um, I do think that um, it, it's my understanding that basically the the – what they're saying at the top at Warner Brothers now is they're not worrying about a cohesive canon. They're not yeah. trying to make an MCU. They were before. Sorry. <laughs> they, they were. They failed. But I... they were attempting to emulate the MCU. They did a terrible job. And now it's very much more like you're going to go over here and do whatever you want plot-wise and tonally. Like, I'm sure, you know, like, they can have a throwaway line that Superman was shot with a kryptonite bullet, but we assume that he's fine. They cannot have Superman fly in and defeat Starro at the end. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like to have something like Birds of Prey, which has a very distinct tone and does play in the Gotham space and makes yeah. Batman jokes without, yeah. you know, actually having the character in there. And that that is not meant to... Like, we're not meant to go into the upcoming The Batman with the understanding that Harley Quinn definitely knows Bruce Wayne's secret. Yeah. Um, or, like, you can have Shazam over in its corner with its very specific tone and this incredibly powerful character. And we don't have to, again, sit here watching Starro storm around this island and wonder, well, why isn't Shazam coming to stop him? Yeah. I will just say, as a little bit of a pushback from the dirty casual, the, from the filthy casual perspective, I thought the title of the movie was perfect because for me, I don't know anything about the Birds of Prey going in. And so I thought it actually was a very good way of introducing the Birds of Prey. And it, it felt to me like a Birds of Prey movie that was primarily about Harley, but in which all the other characters also got a strong introduction. And we saw how they came together. And the way that Harley both played an essential role in that, but then also kind of stepped back because she wasn't going to be a part of all them going forward. So I I think knowing the stuff that you all know, I'm probably completely wrong, but that's just kind of like a different perspective. No, I think it's definitely an ensemble movie. I just think that if you put a character people know the name of in the title, more people will see it. That's yeah, all. That's also yeah. probably true. Yeah. Probably true. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I also thought they did Huntress kind of dirty, but That's uh, like she's my favorite character out of those characters, uh, aside from from Harley. Um, and I was just like, really, this is Huntress? I don't know. Um, yeah, and then again, the dirty casual part helps me in that the only Huntress I can remember is from the Arrowverse, and this is much better. So Amy <laughs> Acker, so much better. Amy yeah. Acker with like the question. In, I, the, in the animated series? Oh, she was so good in that. I saw anyway. the animated series at not the um, time oh, in my okay. life when I had the highest mental acuity. <laughs> so, fair, like, fair, I remember fair. Very fair. A lot of ideas of it, not the exact details. Um, fair. That doesn't yeah. mean I was drunk That's... all the time, but mental illness. Yeah, I, yep, yeah we got gotcha. you. Um, so I, I, we're, we're coming up on two hours, which, as I said, yeah. you put three New Yorkers on a microphone together. I we are the three most verbose people, with the possible exception of Jacob Alicic, who's also from the state of New York. Uh, so he's <laughs> close to New York again, proven. Um, we're all going to be pretty verbose. I knew this was going to go on for a while, but do we have any kind of last thoughts to wrap this up? I have one closing thought. Um, there was I was going to talk about like Gunn wanting to make a movie that was basically like, fuck Marvel, because... They fired him after in like 2018 because mm-hmm. reasons that then they're like, all right, maybe our reasons weren't that good. Maybe you're not Harvey Weinstein. We'll hire you back and you can do Guardians of the Galaxy 3. But like, um, I don't know. There's not that much to say there. Um, more, I think, like the simultaneous release. Like, I'm very supportive of simultaneous online and um, in theater release. I mean... Whether you should even have movies in theaters right now, I don't know. That depends on where you are, probably. But, like, um, I, I think not having them released online at the same time is actually pretty gross. I'm pretty bummed that um, Shang-Chi isn't going to be online when when it's going to come out. Um, I do think that my understanding is that Warner Brothers actually, like, contacted and, like, renegotiated contracts with a lot of people who had points on the films. And I think that's absolutely the right way to go. And even though I think the, you know, um, Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney probably isn't like super solid on a legal basis. I do think that by not proactively being like, look, Hey, we're going to do this thing because what we think is a good reason. And we want to try and, you know, reach out and, and make things, um, more equitable, right? Like everybody's making less money right now for the most part, um, except for a very small number of people and things were always going to go more this direction. I think they've gone this direction faster than they would have because of the pandemic. But I, I think like Disney really, I would say dropped the ball, but that's not accurate. Like they deliberately, decided to just go like pure legal they took route. the ball they yeah. took the they ball were, exactly they kept it exactly and i think like from a legal standpoint that's probably within their legal rights from my understanding of the contracts but like it's a bad look just yeah. like try to do right by the people that you're engaged in business with for a decade like just you know step up and be like okay you know we're not going to give you full points on streaming profits but like we're going to try and work something out and if you can't work something out you can't work something out but at least like try you know and it feels like they didn't do that and i feel like in that case kind of everyone's to some extent in the wrong here i feel like i don't know the details of everything with warner brothers but my understanding is that they did actually provide additional compensation to people who had points on films that did not get a um exclusive theatrical release 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, Disney was definitely trying to set a precedent of we get to keep all the money and none for you. Um, and I appreciate that Warner Brothers is apparently not, you know, signing on wholeheartedly to do that because certainly if all of the studios agreed that that's how they were going to conduct business, there would be very little that anybody could do. And, yeah. you know, yeah. like whether or not Scarlett Johansson wins her lawsuit, she is shining a light on something that is much more widespread than just her. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a situation that I have such mixed feelings. Well, I think I've really solidly come down on the same side. We're all coming down on. But, like, I'm not a great fan of Scarlett Johansson to begin with. I don't start from a perspective of, you know, given all of her stuff about, like, you know, what actors can play what roles. I yeah. generally don't have a feeling of, like, you only got paid $20 million, you deserved 50 That's not, to me, the, the social justice issue I want to write a folk song about. And, and Paul, as you said, also, like... I want to write that song. <laughs> and, and, Paul, as you said, like, I, I think, like, to me, if they get locked in a contract so much that they have to say the only way you can go see these movies that you've wanted to see for years is to risk, you know, continuing the infection of a plague that should have died out mm. months ago if our country wasn't so stupid. Like, every, all of those reasons, I, you'd think I'd be on the side of Disney, but... It's just basic, like, respect for your, your talent, you know? Like, you made a deal with your... Sub the circumstances have changed. And so you can say, like, look, the the contract doesn't necessarily apply in the same way before, but then let's renegotiate it. Not, like, we've made a fundamental... Which she was willing to do. Yeah, exactly. So it's just... Yeah. I, I, I don't... Disney I'm had to work you. very hard to get me on Scarlett Johansson's side in a lawsuit, <laughs> but they did it. <laughs> they, they, meet that, they met that bar. Yeah. I'm with you that I, I have very much soured on her because of um, some of her casting choices and the things that she has said about them. But I still believe she should get paid what she was told she would be paid. Yeah. Like that, that doesn't change. Like she is, even if it is a ridiculous amount of money, it is nowhere near as ridiculous as what Disney is pulling in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so she, she is not the big fish here. She is the medium fish and yeah. I, they should honor their contracts. I, I do think that, like, they are not necessarily not honoring their contracts insofar as, like, she took points, which everybody takes points, and to take points is to take on a level of risk. And so I do think, like, it's not like there's going to be zero dollars between 20 million and 50 million. Like, I just think on the legal issue, like, Disney's not really in the wrong. Like, I don't think, like... I don't think she's right from a, a legal standpoint, as far as I can tell. But I think that the way that they're operating is gross, basically, I, if that makes sense. I don't think this is a legal podcast, and I don't want the legal part of it to be what takes us over <laughs> sure. the two-hour mark. I, I, it's fair. not a Daredevil episode. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Murdock should represent her in court. Yeah. Um, but, yes! But I, I, Charlie Cox would do it. Yeah, you go. That that would probably go very badly for Charlie Johansson. <laughs> my only counterpoint to that, Paul, is my understanding is that part of her points contract was based on uh, language that said as it always does, that the movie would be released exclusively to theaters before it was released in other formats. Um, right, and that's the way that it's been being portrayed, but the word exclusively, I'm pretty sure, is not actually in the contract from what I've seen. It's implied in people's right. minds and, that and, it's supposed to be a widespread theatrical release, but it, the word exclusively is not in there. 
Right. And, and so it gets into all these legal questions about like when unforeseen events happen, to what extent does the con do they contract written under circumstances where that would have been the case? How much does it or does it not apply? And that's that's a whole area of legal thought I have no idea of. Um, we're not legal experts, but at least one of our cases, uh, Jessica, you've demonstrated that you're a comic book expert. And for people who want to read more about your, about your, uh, I'll tell you where to find more about my bad segues later. But for people who want to hear more about your thoughts on comic books as well as so much other stuff, tell us about where folks can find um, your writing. Actually, now that you are not only a commentator, but a creator yourself. That, that was beautiful. That was absolutely seamless. <laughs> um, Yes, uh, I, I do a lot of writing about comics and books in general um, at bookriot.com. I uh, just had a piece about Harley's very first appearances um, in both Batman the Animated Series and the comics go up, um, if you want to check that out. Um, and I had my first fiction published um, in Swordstone Table, which is an anthology of Arthurian legend retellings and stories that play with the mythology, um, but it is a diverse, gender bent, race bent, um, LGBTQ, etc. Uh, take on or many takes on the mythology, um, and that just came out last month. Um, and you can find that wherever books are sold. Yeah, it is. Uh, I've read a number of the stories. I think they're very good. But uh, Jessica, I especially loved yours. Uh, I don't want to spoil it or give anything away, so I really can't say anything about what it's about. But it's just such a brilliant take on a story that folks have heard before that I really appreciated. And I'll also say, because we're now a big official podcast, that there are many ways you can buy that book. But there's a particular link we're going to give you uh, in the show notes for this podcast that will take you to... Uh, it, it's basically like a, a website that allows you to buy from a local bookstore just through a conglomeration. So it's not Amazon or anything like that. But if you buy from there, not only will you support Jessica and we support the, all the other great authors and support a local bookstore, uh, you'll, it, we will also, it's also an affiliate link. So a little bit of that money will also come to help support this podcast and the rest of the podcast, the Stranded Panda Network. So uh, I'm going to happily ride Jessica's coattails to get a couple more cents <laughs> while uh, trying to encourage more people to buy that book. And speaking of the other person whose uh, Twitch coattails I've been riding, Paul, what are you up to these days? Oh, I'm making many cents on um, <laughs> Twitch.tv as a Zen Madman. And uh, you can find me on Twitter as Zen Madman. And um, I I was going to, like, plug my writing, but I never, like, put it anywhere. So, um, but I was going to mention writing about serial killers, I don't know, as heroes. Um, somehow that fit into this theme, I thought. But... <laughs> I understand um, that. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> those very places fair, stuff fair, i don't fair. know whatever <laughs> well and of course you can find everything about this podcast and all my podcasts by going to theethicalpanda.com you can find us on facebook or on twitter at the ethical panda and and you can email us at the ethical panda at gmail.com and i'm saying all that because more than anything like this is a conversation i I love this podcast because I get to say, hey, I watched this movie. Let me get two of my smartest friends on and like discuss it with them because I want to hear other people's thoughts. I don't want to just talk to myself. Uh, my partner my partners might disagree, but like for real, I want to hear other people's thoughts too. So what do you all think? What did, what did you think of the movie? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Is, is this not the version you wanted to see? Do you think it's brilliant? How does this – uh, I'd love to hear from people who love both Suicide Squad movies. Like whatever your perspective, uh, write into us, as I said, theethicalpan.gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at The Ethical Panda. And of course, this podcast, my Star Wars Universe podcast, and a whole bunch of other great podcasts are all can be found on the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. The flagship of that 
Podcast Network is the MCU, MCU Cast, the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. They've done great coverage of this. Uh, Binges Assemble. Uh, I'm sorry, no, no, no. The Marvel, C- <laughs> the Marvel uh, podcast very much did not. But the host of that, Matt Carroll, did do coverage of uh, all of the, the Harley Quinn movies, including this one, on the Bingers Assemble podcast, which is a part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. So definitely check all those out. Please buy the book if you haven't done so. Please uh, check out all of our other podcasts. And the most important thing, the thing that I think is just so essential that I must ask you to do is have a good day. Insert witty comment from Paul here. 